You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. We bring expertise on international affairs from Stanford's campus straight to you. I'm Michael McFall, host of World Class and director of the Freeman Spogli Institute. My guest today is Stephen Pfeiffer, Ambassador Pfeiffer to the rest of you. He is a William J. Perry Fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation. His research focuses on nuclear arms control, Ukraine, Russia, and European security. Steve is also a retired foreign services officer and has focused on U.S. relations with the former Soviet Union and Europe during his time in that position. And he was the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine from... 1998 to 2000, when things were a little bit quieter. A little bit quieter, a little bit different. Ukraine wasn't being attacked by Russia at the time. (laughs) At least not militarily. First of all, Steve, thanks for joining our program today. Delighted to be here. So Ukraine has been in the U.S. news more in the last several days than maybe in the history of the country. You definitely have to go back to the Maidan Revolution, the Revolution of Dignity, maybe back to the Orange Revolution. I had somebody ping me today, a very prominent Silicon Valley venture capitalist, who said, I've read more about Ukraine in the last 48 hours than I have in my entire life. So it's a big event. The president just met last week with President Zelensky for the first time up at the UN General Assembly meeting. Tell us your initial views. What came out of the meeting? What did it look like? What does it mean for U.S.-Ukrainian relations? Well, it looks like a normal first meeting. This was the first time that uh, Presidents Trump and Zelensky sat down together. But of course, they were meeting under the shadow of the question of the president's phone call back in July, on July 25, and questions about whether the President Trump was pushing President Zelensky to dig out some dirt against his political rival, former Vice President Biden. Well, let's talk about that and then come back to the, sure. the, the meeting of last week. How do you assess? We now have seen, we shouldn't call it a transcript. We should call it a memorandum of communication. Is a that memorandum a, of conversation. Conversation, because yeah. this is a conversation, yeah. not a memcom. Memcon. You've had a chance to look at it. How do, what does it look like to you as it was going on in that conversation? Well, there's kind of an interesting juxtaposition where... Zelensky basically says, we would like to buy more Javelin anti-armor missiles. The United States has sold some of these missiles to Ukraine or provided some of these missiles to Ukraine in the past. But immediately then President Trump pivots and says, yes, but I'd like you to do a favor for me. And the favor quickly turns around on getting something that President Trump might be able to use in his uh, election campaign. Right, to year. investigate the vice to investigate president the Biden vice president, sons, right, yeah. right. And this is something that the president's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, he's been talking about this for months. He's been trying to create this appearance of a major scandal. Right. And I don't think there's anything there. But against Pretty the Pretty thin evidence so far, right? I'd say zero evidence. Oh, even zero. Okay, uh, that's really thin. Yeah, and we can come back <laughs> to it. But I mean, if you look in the context of this July 25 phone call, there were two other things happening in the same time frame. First, the president, uh, I think about a week before, had put on hold about $391 million in military assistance that had been authorized by Congress for Ukraine. Right. And that before the phone call before with the phone call. President-elect Zelensky. Was uh, no, he, actually, he was already elected he, by he, then. Yeah, I'm he sorry. was in office by President then. Zelensky. Okay. So that was put on hold, and that money was only released about two weeks ago. Right. The second thing that appears to have been on hold is that President Trump had invited Zelensky to Washington or to come to the United States back at the beginning of June, right. but they'd not yet set a date. Right. And that date was only set about 10 days ago. And those are two things. I mean, the military assistance, but also the opportunity to come to meet with the American president. Those are big things for Zelensky, particularly at the beginning of his term in office. Right. I mean, if he can show he delivers on the assistance and also the photo op with the American president, that's really good at home. 
but it's also a good message to the Russians. I've got a relationship here with the Americans. Right. Those who are saying that there was this, the president didn't say quid pro quo, but the juxtaposition suggests, in fact, there was something like that. Right. And we don't know what Mr. Giuliani was saying on the side in his contacts with the Ukrainians. Well, that's a good point, too. But I think you really raise a, a very important point that people are looking for the quid pro quo in the text and yeah. in the conversation. Obviously, if military assistance has been withheld and you want a meeting with President Trump, that creates leverage in a very asymmetric relationship at a time Let's remind our listeners where President Trump has a proclivity to be very friendly to Vladimir Putin. So mm -hmm. President Zelensky's playing in that space. He has to look cooperative, right? Uh, exactly. I mean, and again, he's trying to build this relationship. Right. If you're sitting in Kiev, certainly your Western partners in Europe, they're important. But the country that really thinks about Ukraine in strategic terms right. that you see as the counterbalance to Russia is not Germany, it's not France, it's not Britain, it's the United States. And so that is a very difficult place for the newly elected president of Ukraine to be in. Very tight line that he's walking there, right? It is. And you've got, again, Julani has been trying for months now to create this appearance of a scandal based on a story that's long been debunked that Vice President Biden back in 2015, asked the Ukrainian government to fire the prosecutor general, a guy by the name of Viktor Shokin, and that the vice president was doing that to prevent an investigation into a Ukrainian company on which his son, Hunter Biden, was on the board. Right. Now, I think Hunter Biden probably sure not the best judgment in getting involved At when his time, father right? was yes. sort of the leading American you know, figure on Ukraine policy. Right. But there's no evidence to suggest that there was any wrongdoing. In fact, if anything, the Ukrainian prosecutor general offices were not investigating. They were hampering investigations into the company Burisma Holdings. Right. So, for example, in one case, they refused to provide information to the British government. Right. Which prevented the British government from being able to freeze money that Burisma Holdings had in London. But in the case of asking for the Ukrainians to fire Shoking, everybody, Ukrainian yes. reformers, American officials, other you know, European leaders, European leaders IMF. IMF, everybody wanted yes. to see Shokin gone. He was not doing his job. Right. And so Giuliani has taken these two pieces and has tried to create this appearance of some big scandal, but there really is no there there. And it's even especially odd. The president last week in his conversation mm -hmm. with President Zelensky at the United Nations had more praiseworthy things to say about Mr. Shokin than anybody I've ever heard of. So that was very ironic. <laughs> I, I think, I think, I think uh, that uh, President Trump is perhaps the only American official who has publicly expressed any kind of praise for Mr. Shokin. Let's talk a little bit about Giuliani's role in this for a minute. When you were in the government, both in Washington and out in Kiev, do you remember a time when a private individual was so deeply involved in what looks should be diplomatic or national security matters? Not at all. I mean, and this, I believe, is damaging to American diplomatic efforts with Ukraine. Right. Because you have an embassy there that's trying to pursue American interests. You know, we want Ukraine, for example, to help put pressure on Iran. We want Ukraine to do more on reform. And then you have Giuliani coming in with a very different agenda. His agenda is to get Donald Trump reelected in 2020. Right. Those two agendas are not consistent, and it sends mixed signals to the Ukrainians. Right. My concern would be that if you're sitting there in Kiev, particularly if the president said, talk to my guy Giuliani, you may have that conversation. And that, I think, gets into some pretty dangerous ground. Right. And it gets into dangerous ground for Zelensky in Ukraine. Explain that. That's interesting. 
since Ukraine regained independence in 1991, it's had broad partisan support from Republicans and Democrats right. in Congress. Right. You know, the Clinton administration, the George W. Bush administration, the Obama administration were all very supportive of Ukraine and seeing Ukraine succeed in right. becoming a normal, stable, democratic European state. If all of a sudden now President Zelensky allows Ukraine to become a political football in the American 2020 election, he puts at risk that bipartisan support. That's a great point. And that would be, That's I dangerous. think, dangerous for Ukraine. Right. You think he understands that? He's just trying um, to do his best? Or? I hope so. And He's ba- pretty new at this he's stuff He's pretty new after at this all, game, right? but if you go back and you look at the press briefing that he and President Trump had after their meeting, right. he seemed to be pretty careful to keep a neutral line. Right. So my guess is his people understand that you know, if you decide to throw in too closely with President Trump, you may end up uh, alienating the Democrats, and you want to have both sides being supportive of Ukraine in the Congress. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I was quite impressed with that press conference. Not better than the conversation that was released. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't think President Zelensky looks so great in that one, talking about staying in the Trump Tower and firing the ambassador. I want to come back to yeah. that in a minute, because as both of us as former ambassadors, interesting to see how our presidents <laughs> talk about us. But in the conversation that he had after his meeting yeah. with President Trump, I thought he was delicately moving in that space. And in particular, I thought he did one really clever thing. He went out of his way to say, we're a democracy. We're going to investigate the rule of law, but I can't call the prosecutor general and tell him how to do his job. I thought that was quite brilliant because indirectly, that was a criticism of President Trump, who in the phone call in July 25th, we now know from the, the memorandum, said, I'm going to tell the attorney general to be in, in exactly. touch with you to investigate this alleged corrupt American son of the former vice president. So that was a sign of cleverness. I, I think Zelensky is actually fairly smart and fairly clever. And we've seen that over the last five or six months. I also, going back and looking at the transcript, Again, Zelensky probably did not anticipate that it was going to be released. Of course not. I mean, these, <laughs> yes, things, of course. these things normally are kept yes. out of it. Looking at it in terms of, my guess is, you know, the briefing memorandum that he got was right. Trump responds to flattery. Right. So there's a lot of flattery there. In fact, I advocated in a blog post about a month ago. Right. You were giving him advice before I, I came I said, you know, flatter post. Trump. I right. mean, that, that's, that's where you get on a good We've seen evidence that, yeah. that works. And right. We've seen evidence that works. And so... It's not illogical for Zelensky to be doing that, especially in a private conversation. Right. But as you said, in his meeting or in the press briefing after his meeting last week with Trump, he was much more careful to take a neutral right. line. There's one other piece that's been in the news over the last several days I want you to help our, our listeners understand. And this really comes mostly from Mr. Giuliani. But he has singled out Ukraine and Ukrainian officials for having interfered in the U.S. election in 2016 by, correct me if I'm wrong, but exposing corruption on Mr. Manafort. Untangle that mess for us a little bit so we understand it. And how does it relate to this Biden thing, if at all? I think it's a separate question from the Biden issue. I think basically you had uh, Sergei Lyschenko, not a member of the Ukrainian government. He was a parliamentarian who, before he joined the Ukrainian parliament, was a journalist who focused in exposing corruption. And he was the person who exposed the fact that Paul Manafort had received something like $12 million off the books from a Ukrainian political party. So Giuliani is trying to say, well, this is Ukraine interfering in our election in the Ukrainian government. Well, no, this is actually a parliamentarian who has a track record of working against corruption, came out and saying, look, this isn't right. Well, there's a real paradox there, isn't it? President Trump was saying last week, I'm against corruption, but... 
if it's corruption involving one of his officials, he doesn't want to be talking about <laughs> no, it. That, no, that, no. You can't just be for individualized corruption, yeah. right? This is a story that I remember in Russia all the time. You know, you're going to fight corruption across the board or you're not going to fight it. But to individually single out people, that's not a real anti-corruption yeah, yeah. campaign. And this actually raises sort of a broader concern I've had, which is every American ambassador since 1991 to Ukraine has talked about Ukraine's need to do more to fight corruption. And, right. and one of the reasons why Zelensky won by such an overwhelming margin in the uh, presidential election in May was because he came out and said, I'm going to take a stand against corruption. I'm right. going to deal with the oligarchs. But when you have an appearance that the president is saying, I want you to dig out political dirt on my rifle, that sends a really bad message. Right. And I think it's very hard for us to be in Ukraine now pushing an anti-corruption message when Ukrainians can say, but what's going on Look in Washington? What you're doing. That is unfortunate for sure. Yeah. Let's get to the future in a second. But one mm. last question that, that you're uniquely qualified to, or at least feel, if not yeah. uh, explain for us. The removal of the former ambassador, Ambassador Jovanovich, right? Yeah. I said yes. his name right? Masha, I know that you know her. You guys must have worked together. It's I've known her for more than 25 years. Wow. Uh, and she, okay. uh, she was an exemplary diplomat. This was her third ambassadorial posting. Which is unusual, right, to do yeah, three? Yeah, yeah. That's I quite mean, a that, bit. that's a good sign. And she was appointed by both Democrats and Republicans. Right. What do you think happened there, to the best of well, your knowledge? My take on this is, and this is my own surmise, yep. I don't really have yep. a, the hard evidence, Ambassador Ivanovich was very critical of the last prosecutor general under President Poroshenko, a guy by the name of Lutsenko, right. and said he was not doing his job in terms of fighting corruption. Again, which many Americans would have agreed with, or knowledgeable Americans about Ukraine would have agreed with, and many Ukrainians would agree with. Lutsenko didn't like that. Right. And earlier this year, I think it was in February, Lutsenko and Giuliani met. Right. And I think that that was a pretty diabolical connection. And so Lutsenko obviously must have been bad-mouthing her. I, I, I shouldn't say obviously, allegedly, but that, that would make sense. That, that is my suspicion, right. is that Lutsenko was unhappy about being criticized, so he, he said some things to Giuliani, and then Giuliani carried out this campaign against Ambassador Ivanovich. Right. Which was very unfortunate. She was widely respected in Ukraine, at least with the Ukrainians I talked to. By all appearances, she did a very good job, and her time there was called short. She was supposed to leave in the summer, but instead she left in early May. And she left at a really interesting time. I mean, the State Department spokesman said, well, we normally change ambassadors when there's a new leader coming to power. That doesn't happen. When you have a new leader coming to power, you actually want to have your ambassador on the in ground place, yes. because you want to be in and make the connections with the new president. You want to make connections with his right. or her new team because right. that's how you build the relationship. Yes. That's not the time when you want to have the ambassadorial position empty. We do have a temporary ambassador there today, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, what, what happened is there was a kind of a gap where you have a charge. It was the deputy chief of mission. And then because of the importance of Ukraine, they actually had William Taylor, a former, ser- ambassador. a former ambassador to Ukraine. He was there, I think, from 2006, 2009. So he's gone back as charge, and right. he's well in favor of known to Ukrainians. So, right. I mean, that, that's a that good, good person to have on the ground there. Right. Yeah. There's one little ironic twist to that. When I was part of the Obama transition mm-hmm. back in 2008, I was in charge. I remember this because it felt like a big job. Uh, to review all the ambassadors in the former Soviet Union. That yeah. Later we divided out uh, in a different way, but during the transition, and to make an assessment, should we keep them in place? Because mm-hmm. I think formally they all resign, right, right, when the new president comes in. Our president, not, not yes. the country where they're serving. 
And I remember getting to Ukraine and we had this debate and it's like, well, he seems like a good guy. Let's keep him. Yeah. Uh, I, think I, I think I may have even sent you a message about I that think too. Yes. Actually, you did. Now that yes. your, yeah, yeah. I recall we talked yeah. about that. And he is a good guy. Yeah. But uh, the irony is, you know, one might accuse him of being some Obama person, but hopefully not. Because after all, diplomacy, national security is, should never be a partisan issue. Yeah, one thing that career ambassadors are sort of taught from, from the beginning is that you are there as the representative of the United States, but also the representative of the president. Right. And that means that you have to have the discipline to work for a president whom you may disagree with. Right. But what the career foreign service does is we understand that the president, whether it's a Republican or Democrat, needs a professional diplomatic corps to carry out the policy. Right. So, again, I think they may disagree with the president. They may not have voted for him, but they understand that their role is basically to carry out that policy. So to think about the bigger picture of U.S.-Ukrainian relations, this is an unusual start for two, well, one new president in their first interactions last week. How do you see it going forward, Steve? Is there a way to repair this? Could this somehow work to Ukraine's favor in terms no. of this bilateral relationship? Or do you think it's going to be shaky all the way through our electoral process here in the United States? I'm not sure if it's going to be shaky all the way through. But again, Zelensky has to walk a fine line here. Because on the one hand, he wants to maintain a good relationship with Trump. That's right. important. But on the other hand, he doesn't want to get sucked into our domestic politics. Right. So he's going to have to show the sort of nuance and subtlety that I think he showed in his press conference with Trump after the meeting last week in New York, uh -huh. and basically find ways to sort of turn aside what I would consider to be inappropriate approaches by the White House to have you know, his officials receive somebody like Giuliani. We'll right. see. And that's going to be, again, it's going to be important if he wants to maintain bilateral support in Congress. And when you look at American policy in the Trump administration towards Ukraine, the administration's policy has been pretty good. So, for example, the administration has done something that didn't happen before, which was provide lethal military lethal, assistance. Right. Ukraine. But I'm not sure that's a policy the president instinctively agrees with. Right. And so Zelensky wants to have a good reputation on and a good, good reputation with Congress because Congress can be that ultimate backstop. And we saw two weeks ago where the questions were beginning to arise, why has the White House held up this military assistance to Ukraine? You begin to see even Republican senators saying, hey, right. wait a minute. Because they appropriated the money, right? They appropriated they the money, and that... also they want to see that money go to Ukraine. Right. And, and so keeping, uh, keeping keep both sides, Republicans and Democrats in Congress, on Ukraine's side is important. I agree with you. I think that's the only way they can succeed. I mean, maybe the last question, just your general take, 30,000 feet. New president, new parliament, new government in Ukraine. Yeah. How do you think they're doing? President Trump last week said, seems like you're making progress with the Russians. Is that true? I mean, just yeah. you're kind of, how are they doing so far? Let me divide it up to domestically and then with Russia. Yeah. I mean, domestically, I think there are both reasons for optimism, but there are a couple concerns. On okay. the optimism, if you look at the, his first four months as president, Zelensky said the right things about fighting corruption. He said the right things about curbing the influence of oligarchs. He's talked about ec economic reform, including, for example, land reform, which they haven't managed to do for 25 years. Right. Huge uh, issue. Yeah, right. He's talked about strengthening democratic institutions, including putting through a law that regularizes the procedures for impeaching the president. <laughs> and he's also... He's, <laughs> I didn't know that. He's wow, also, that's ironic. Yeah, he's also reached out to Europe. I mean, his first trip abroad was to Brussels to meet with the leaders of the European Union and NATO. Right. That's positive. He has a parliamentary majority for his party. No president of Ukraine has ever had right. that kind of majority. It's always been a cobbled together coalition, which frequently then fell apart. 
So he has the ability to get his agenda through the parliament. Ukrainians are optimistic about him. You're seeing now approval ratings of 70 to 80 percent. You don't see those numbers in Ukraine about anybody. Or anywhere in the world. Right, That's right. incredible so, numbers, so, right? So he's doing that. Those are the positive sides. I guess I would express maybe two or three concerns. One is he has a pretty young team. So the average age of his cabinet is like in the 30s. Mm-hmm. And the question is, do those guys have experience? Or do they have people around them who have the experience to make the government trains run on time, to get legislative agendas passed, things like that? Right. Second, he's moving pretty fast. And there's been some couple of complaints that they're pushing some legislation through the parliament so quickly that maybe people aren't having enough time to really take a look at this and say, is this the right legislation? Do we have to make certain amendments and such? Mm-hmm. And then the third and probably the biggest question is, what about his relationship with the guy by the name of Ihor Kolomoisky? Right. Kolomoisky Explain ran the that television is, yeah. network uh-huh. that broadcast Zelensky's show. Before he became president, he was a television comedian. Right. Kolomoisky is one of the larger oligarchs in Ukraine. Right. There are lots of questions about him. Right. And after Zelensky won, Kolomoisky, who had been living in Israel, came back to Ukraine and was parading around as if he'd won. And so people are watching that relationship to say, what's Kolomoisky's role going to be in this? Right. Zelensky said he'll have no role, you know, but they met three weeks ago, and there'll be an early test. There was a bank called Privat Bank, largest bank in Ukraine. Kolomoisky was, I think, the major shareholder. Right. And when they audited the bank about three years ago, they found there was $5 billion missing. $5 billion missing. How do you miss $5 billion? (laughs) That's hard to do. Well, that'd be hard for me to do. Allegedly, most of this went to shell companies reportedly owned by Kolomoisky and some of his partners. Okay. And then they reported bad debts and it was written off. Well, the Ukrainian central bank came in, nationalized Privat Bank. Right paid $5 billion into it, basically to keep the bank solvent. Kolomoisky now wants the bank back. <laughs> right. And so how Zelensky test, handles that is going to be a very clear test. And again, if, if there's any move to sort of let Kolomoisky come back in, he's going to have a big issue with the International Monetary Fund, as well as, I think, supporters in both the United States and Europe. So that's the domestic scene. But I think right now I, I tend to be optimistic with those concerns, and we'll have to see how he manages them. Then there's the big question, how does it deal with Russia? And there has been some progress with Russia in that earlier in September, you had an exchange of 70 prisoners that had been negotiated for months and months. That finally happened. That's so 35 sense. people came back to Ukraine, including the 24 sailors who'd been illegally seized back right. in November of last year. Uh-huh. But the larger question still remains, is the Kremlin ready for a genuine settlement of the conflict in Donbass and eastern Ukraine? Or do they want to keep that conflict simmering? as a means to put pressure on Kyiv to make it harder for Zelensky to achieve his agenda. Although it doesn't make the headlines, you still have every week Ukrainian soldiers are dying right. uh, on the line of contact. Right. And more than 13,000 killed to date. Wow. So we still have... 13,000. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think, probably now the bloodiest conflict in post-war Europe. I, I think it's probably hmm. surpassed what you had in the Balkans back in the 90s. Uh-huh. So is the Kremlin ready for that change? We don't know. Now, there's a report or reports that in October, a meeting of Putin, Zelensky, and then the leaders of Germany and France might meet. The Germans and the French brokered a settlement back in 2015, which right. has never been implemented. But there's talk about that kind of meeting. And that would be an interesting early sign. Does Putin come to that meeting with something new? Uh-huh. We'll have to see. And that would also be then an occasion for perhaps the first bilateral face-to-face meeting between Putin and Zelensky. And that's going to be really interesting because on the one hand, 
Zelensky is pretty new to this game. He's untested, and Putin's been doing it for 18, 19 years. Right. So how does Zelensky manage Putin? But on the other hand, I believe that for Putin, Zelensky's a challenge. He responds in some interesting ways. When Putin said back in, I think it was July, well, we're going to give the people of the occupied part of Donbass Russian passports. Zelensky's response was, well, if they want to take a passport that they didn't have to go to stand in a line at a European embassy to get a visa, whereas their Ukrainian passport gets them visa fee travel, okay, I don't know why they would want to do that, but it's their right. choice. And the other problem that I believe Zelensky poses for Putin and the Kremlin is he destroys the narrative that they've tried to create since the Maidan revolution in 2014, that since that revolution you've had neo-fascist, right. neo-Nazi elements in control in Kiev. Well, First of all, Zelensky's Jewish. Right. Second, he speaks Russian, I mean, yeah. as well as Ukrainian, and actually prefers Russian. Yeah. And the other problem is his movies actually played in Russia, and by some reports, very popular, right? his approval rating in Russia is as high as, as Putin's. Right. And I'm not sure that Putin has figured out how to deal with that. So there's going to be the possibly some very interesting interactions between huh. these two people in the next month or two, and definitely a space worth watching. And that's a great time for us to invite you back to World Class after those meetings, if they happen. Uh, Ambassador Pfeiffer, thank you for joining World Class. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to World Class from the Freeman Smogley Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. If you liked this episode, please review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find the show. And be sure to subscribe and to stay up to date on what's happening in the world and why.